Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So would you give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it, hearts to believe it and feet to follow. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. This is the second Sunday of Epiphany. We have started a study in the book of Philippians that we'll do throughout the season of Epiphany. And one of the driving narratives of this season is that of the Magi the larger scheme of the, the narrative of the Christmas story. And I, I love this for one particular reason. I, I get this mental picture of these three wizened old men. Often they're called wise men. Some of you didn't know magi, wise men. Either way you want to go. But you get these three old wizened men who have their eyes opened and their hearts enlightened in the presence of a child. And if you're a parent here today, you spend a lot of time informing your children. But you also know that your children inform you. What I would say is that's actually a healthy spiritual rhythm. Kids don't take advantage of what I'm saying. Scripture prescribes that we maintain childlikeness as we grow older. And our bodies fight that. Okay, There's not a, there's not a guarantee of no uh, male pattern baldness. Uh, there's nothing in that that helps ailing joints or lower backs. Uh, you can't defeat the decreasing metabolism. That's, that's not what it's referring to. It's referring to a youthful state of heart. And there is certainly a difference between childlikeness and childishness. In some ways, that's a secret to parenting. Trying to maintain those things that are childlike and trying to shed those things that are childish. And in our frustration, we can often kind of just throw out the whole baby with the bathwater. I could mention several ways this childlikeness plays out. Perhaps I'll just do one this morning. Uh, it's, it's to be childlike is to have this inquisitive curiosity about things that are seen and things that are unseen. And the way you see this come out is in questions. Okay, childishness, actually, is what a lot of us end up maturing into as adults. We lose 
intellectual humility and substitute in intellectual pride. We know everything. And what we lose in that is a sense of wonder. And if you lose a sense of wonder, you will not worship. So it'd be good for us to maintain childlikeness with this curiosity and this wonder. A great litmus test is just to ask yourself, how many questions are you asking as a regular part of your life? Children do ask questions. I'm going to share just a few with you um, that have come to me that I found humorous or meaningful. Uh, Some from my own children, some from family, some from the time when I was a children's director way back in the day. Um, First, does chocolate milk come from a brown cow? Kids, any of you asked that or thought it? (laughs) Parents, any of you thought that? Um, Did Adam and Eve have a belly button? Fascinating thought. If you've not thought about that one, think about it. Not now, but later. Uh, If mommy's body can make milk, can her body also make eggs? I don't know if you want to go down that road today with your children. Uh, You told me ghosts don't exist. If that's true, why do we say every week we believe in the Holy Ghost? We're going to say it twice right after this sermon in our creed. Uh, If you can put wings on a plane and make it fly, can you put wings on me and make me fly? It's a fascinating thought. The only thing more terrifying than an unruly child is one with wings. Uh, If there are no animals in heaven, how does Jesus come back on a horse? My niece posed that to me about a decade ago after she lost her dog in the road. It's getting heavier. How about this one? Dad, what happens to us when we die? That, that question moves me because it's been asked and you feel the curse of sin and death. Dad, are you going to die? It's an existential question from the mouth of a child and our, our tendency is to ignore or avoid it because of what I had to pause with. It's, it's like Bruno and Encanto. Anybody seen that movie? It's the new Disney flick. You, you, take, you take the idea of death and you bury it behind the walls of your house, never to come out until it just intrudes as an unwelcome guest. And what I would actually say is that question is a very important question. And it's a reality that we need to bring out into the forefront and we have to face We can't treat it that way. Because when we consider death, what happens is there's a a reorientation to our life. Okay, Churches from centuries past knew this. Have you ever been to an older church and they have a cemetery on the church grounds? Okay, To some extent, you start thinking about there's a reason we don't do that anymore. But in terms of worldview and spiritually speaking, what? A gift that when you would walk in to worship, you would immediately be faced with the idea of your mortality, of the meaning of life, 
hoping that when you walk in these doors, you're going to get an answer that gives you hope. And guess what? You do. You absolutely do. What happens to us when we die? That's part of the consideration of this passage. It's for Paul. Okay, he is in chains awaiting imprisonment, and he is struggling with his thoughts through a potential execution that could follow. I'm going to say it differently. He's facing uncertainty, suffering, and death, just like you and me. Unavoidable. And what's fascinating is he's pondering these ultimate realities is that he, out of the same side of his mouth, simultaneously starts talking about joy and rejoicing. Is he being childish, blindly optimistic, overly naive? Or perhaps he knows something that we need to know. Perhaps death and joy aren't so far apart from each other for some mysterious reason. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, it's a reason that you can know. It's the gift of this passage. We get an answer to that question. But we also get to see a soliloquy. Okay, There's a conversation that Paul has with himself, and we're invited into it. And as he contemplates imprisonment in his life and death, including the possibility of execution, we're seeing that there's a key to joy. And it's really two things. One, there's an eager expectation. And two, it produces an essential mindset. So first, an eager expectation. If you look at the passage uh, in verse 18, something significant changes from the verses that precede it. Okay, and it's verb tense. Don't fall asleep with grammar. Sometimes it'll save your life. I had an English teacher say that, and I can't believe I'm repeating it. Okay, but these, these verbs in verse 18 switch. There's something interesting that happens. Mostly, they've been past and present up to this point, but now they become exceedingly future tense. And so it's as if he's leading us in an interesting way on the path to joy. It's not backwards, but it's forwards. And most of the time, when we want joy, we go backwards. We take the train of nostalgia. Think Clark Griswold, stuck in the attic, freezing to death, pulling out the old rolls of family Christmas past, putting on grandmother's fur coat, and tears of joy start to stream down our face as we recall these pleasant memories from of old. That really is what we do. We think of the graduation ceremony with family and gifts and celebration. We go to our first dance at our wedding. Perhaps we think of the bride being revealed and walking down the aisle in what feels like slow motion to the groom who is fighting back tears of joy up front or just letting them flow all together. Such a precious moment. Perhaps it's the birth of your first child when you hold them and you see them breathe for the first time. They try to wrap their little fingers around your finger because I guess this is a normal human response once you've been stuck in somewhere for a long time. But just seeing they can just barely touch their own fingertips because they're so small, so fragile, so precious. Maybe it's the 50th wedding anniversary. You can't believe you made it. But you realize maybe the best kind of love really is the well-weathered kind. 
and it makes you hope for a 60th. There's these groundswells of joy that come as we go backwards, but that's not what Paul does, and it's not what Paul prescribes. He leads us forwards in the pursuit of joy. Look with me at the verses. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. My salvation is the Greek word. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. The verbs, the ideas, they're almost exclusively future tense. And so in his pursuit of joy amidst the uncertainty and suffering and the death of his life, he moves forward talking about eagerly expecting to be saved. What is he talking about? Well, first, it's not his imprisonment. We know that he's not eagerly expecting to be delivered from prison because he says in the following verses, whether I am present with you or whether I am absent, there's the potential that he remains in his chains. It's also not referring to his potential execution. The verses that follow say this in the end of verse 20, whether it is by life or by death. He anticipates that this will not happen in his soliloquy, but he has no eager expectation or certainty of it. So what is he so eagerly expecting, knowing that this deliverance will come? This is the secret. This is the key to joy. This is the Christian hope. Paul's not just staring death in the face. He's looking beyond it. He's walking right through it. And the beauty and the glory and the certainty that he sees on the other side, he takes that future reality and he lets it invade his present circumstance and it changes everything. Instead of fear, there's courage. Instead of anxiety, there's hope. Instead of self-protection, there's self-sacrifice and self-release. It completely changes his perspective. He's not trying to be delivered out of his suffering. He's trying to be delivered through his suffering. He's looking beyond it. And it's because it's the only guaranteed deliverance we've really got. Did you hear me? You know what's uncertain? Tomorrow. You know what is certain? forever. And so just in terms of anxiety management, we don't go far enough into the future. We go far enough just to worry, but we don't go far enough to find joy. So Paul has this unexplicable, inexplicable joy because he's looking into the future and borrowing it and letting it invade his present. It's the promise of God in Jesus Christ. It's resurrection joy. And that is the key. We see this in Philippians. You're going to hear it probably at least two or three more times as we go through this epistle. Uh, Let me go backwards. Philippians 1 starts this way. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Look forward. 
The chapter after this, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection. One thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. And then in the next chapter, in Philippians 4, there's a passage that we often recite in the church because we're typically anxious people. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you know how that sentence actually begins? The Lord is at hand. That's a phrase used throughout the centuries to call to attention the resurrected Christ will return. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. The key to joy amidst uncertainty and suffering is not being delivered out of it. It's setting your mind so far future to the only certain thing and letting that invade your present circumstances. And that's why Paul does it over and over and over again. And that's why this is such a gift to us. It's an invitation to us. Tomorrow is uncertain, but in Christ forever is guaranteed. And so here's how that really plays out. And this first is sad news and then good news. The sad news is is that those who don't know Christ... For them, all of their joy is temporary and all of their suffering and uncertainty is forever. Because there's nothing certain for them to attach their joy to. But for those in Christ, it's the opposite. All our present sufferings are exactly that, temporary. And all of our joy is eternal. Paul said it this way, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager expectation. The only other time Paul uses that phrase in all of his letters besides Philippians chapter one. The creation waits with eager expectation for what? For the revealing of the sons of God. For the resurrection We wait with hopeful certainty because the guarantor of that guarantee is the Lord God Almighty. And he cannot lie and he will not fail. And so this eager expectation of deliverance leads Paul to a really essential mindset. It reveals what matters most, what's worth living and dying for, what is actual gain and what is actual loss. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Okay, now, there's something significant that happens again here, and I'm going to talk about verbs. They come back to the present tense. So, so he's doing what we try to do every Sunday, where you hear something that's magnificent, and then you apply it to your life, and he's letting us see how he applies the hope of this future reality into his life into his present circumstance. We hear it in action. It's his purpose statement. It's the essential mindset of the Christian who gets this. And he says to live is Christ. Very few attain to this. 
the, the worldly person who doesn't know Christ, the mission statement is to live. And the pursuit of life is to fill in the blank. I don't feel an ounce of judgment in my heart towards that person. It makes me sad. Because there's a constant ongoing change and exchange of an anchor for the soul. And all it ends up being is waves over and over and over again. There is no to live is Christ. It is just to live. And if you secure yourself to insecure things, you're going to have insecurities. But I also see this in the religious community. So many do not attain to lasting joy here necessarily either because at best what they arrive at is to die as Christ. Not to live as Christ, but to die as Christ. And out of potential fear or anxiety of death itself or even a hell. There's an acknowledgement given in order to avoid. It's kind of like disaster insurance and risk management. And it may never be coined that way, but it's lived out in that reality. And you know what it does. It produces spurts of obedience, but it will never produce lasting joy. And it will never do justice to the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I beg you, if that's you, find the better way. To live is Christ. That's what Paul says. That's his conclusion when all is said and done. And it's actually to live Christ. We're back to verbs again. There are none here. The best translation is to live is Christ, but it's really to live Christ. And what it means is it's almost as if life to Paul and, and Christ to him are synonymous. They're the same thing. To live Christ. That Christ informs and infects all of his life. It's his supreme desire and it's his overarching purpose. And that's why he goes on to say as he's playing this out, I need to go to work. If I live, this is fruitful labor for me. To work is Christ. He starts with his job, and then he says, to live as Christ, it's, it's to see faith and joy increasing in the people around me, particularly Philippi. But the, the point is, is Paul doesn't compartmentalize Christ. He is not part and parcel to his life. He is life itself. He is not an appetizer to life. He is the entree. He's not something to be drunk. He is the source He's the spring. So for Paul, he can no more separate Jesus from his earthly life than he could separate Jesus from his heavenly future. And so if he must lose his life for Christ's sake, that's gain to him. The world cannot kill a man who has died to the world. And so he says to die is gain. What a strange Statement: something you would never utter at a wake or at a funeral unless the person deceased knew Jesus Christ. To die gain. In the same way to live Christ, to die gain. Death is gain. It's not the back door to life, it's the front door. 
Because to depart is to be in the presence of life, of Christ. And because that's his life, what else would he want? And because that's his life, what could really be taken from him? Death for him is the front door. Paul says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Hallelujah. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew this, to die is gain. Death has been swallowed up in victory. The world has been turned upside down. Death is Christ. Life is Christ. In all things, Christ. And I don't mean to downplay death. We just prayed for some who are on the brink or mourning because of it. It's unpleasant. It's gruesome. It's evil. It befell our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and was no less gruesome. He asked for it to pass. But for the joy that was set before him, think forward. He endured the cross. He despised its shame and he is now set down right where he wants to be with the Father, his life, his source of joy. We have this pattern, don't we? And so for the Christian, it's strange and even upside down, and we have to be careful how we communicate it. But there's something beautiful about death. Uh, you may be aware, you've seen pictures outside this interim sanctuary over here. We're in the process of constructing a columbarium. Okay, it's our version of that ancient cemetery on the church grounds without all the other stuff that you thought about earlier when I mentioned having a cemetery on the church grounds. And you know, it's going to be beautiful. It's not ugly like death. It's beautiful. And someone might take offense to that. I actually think that it's exactly as it should be. That for me and my children, when we walk by that, and we're faced with the question of those who have passed before us and of our own lives, and of our death and of our purpose, that we can walk through these doors and we can hear over and over and over again, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. It's the hope of the world. It's the key to joy, no matter what your circumstances are. To live is Christ, to die, gain. Let's pray. Father in heaven, make us mindful that those things which we cannot see might be the truest things indeed. May we be childlike in our ability to be wonderfully enamored with the resurrection of Jesus and what he's done and what he's promised. And may we let that invade our lives today. I ask all this in his name. Amen.